0: AXE OF THE BLOOD
1: GOD <laughs> Welcome to another episode of AXE OF THE BLOOD GOD, U.S. GAMER'S OFFICIAL RPG PODCAST. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. With me today, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford.
2: Hello everybody, I had to drag Cat away from the World Cup, but here we are
1: drag me away nothing i'm watching it as we speak <laughs> the kicky ball. world cup's been amazing so far I'm, I'm watching it's gonna date the podcast somewhat you can you can tell when we're actually recording it which is a tuesday yeah. <laughs> but it's england versus Colombia right now uh god only knows what things are going to be like next monday uh because we'll be well into the quarterfinals by then yeah 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 we're watching england and Colombia an extra time as i am walking watching this so that gives you an idea, but uh, we're, we're not going to talk about soccer as much as I want actually, to. I really want to sit here and talk about soccer this entire episode. Now, we're going to talk about uh, a couple things. Well, first of all, we're going to talk about number 23 on our top 25 RPG list, which you can see in the next segment, and we'll be joined by special guest David Craddock. And also, uh, but also we're talking about an RPG that Nadia's been playing. We kind of talked about a little bit last week, and that was Project Octopath Traveler. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure that by the time this podcast goes up, the review embargo will be up, right?
2: The preview embargo will be up, not the review embargo.
1: Because the review embargo is like July 7th, right?
2: No, 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 The review embargo is like, I think the, shoot, the 12th? Oh, okay. The preview is like the 6th or the 7th.
1: Well, let us, preview let us preview Octopath Traveler, yes. and then we can do a more proper review in a later episode, shall we? Yes, let's. All right. Nada, you've actually been playing Octopath Traveler, and I think the first question that I got to ask is, which character did you pick?
2: <laughs> I picked, uh, I, I don't know how to pronounce her name, Hanit, Hanit, so there's an apostrophe, okay. an apostrophe in there. I, I saw she has a, a snow leopard, and I'm like, hell yeah, a snow leopard, so I picked her immediately. Uh, I
1: believe the exact term was fuck yeah, snow leopard. Yeah,
2: <laughs> that's what I said on Slack. here, <laughs> Which
1: I said should be in like your bio. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I really like, I mean, I like all cats, but I really like snow leopards. They're, they got really fuzzy tails.
1: All right, so you picked this character. Tell me a bit more about this character.
2: Well, she's basically, um, I guess if you had to put her in Final Fantasy terms, she'd be a beast master. Uh, she utilizes bows as well as hatchets, and uh, she can summon and capture beasts. Which uh, like her snow leopard is uh, like her default beast, and that can either attack all enemies or pounce on one enemy for a lot of damage. You can't really control who she attacks or who the who the snow leopard attacks or how. But uh, she's a pretty powerful uh, ally to have.
1: I when it comes to picking, I see I would have picked Hanne as well. Yeah. Um, because if there there are two things that I always look for, can I have an animal buddy? Yes. <laughs> is the answer yes? Yes. Okay. And do I get a bow, and if both of those answers are yes, and often they are because often beast masters or rangers mm-hmm. or that kind of thing or friends with the animals often they have um often they have bows, so i I would have picked Hannah as well, so good choice, Nadia. yeah,
2: I mean, I've always gone for like the kind of ranger slash druid class. I always like having animal buddies, especially the thing that sold me though is the fact that uh, she has a permanent animal buddy. It's not like one of those animal buddies that like run away every time whenever like you're done using them. like The snow leopard's there all the time.
1: Or you don't have to go. It's not one of those animal buddies that you have to actually go out and capture, a la Pokemon or Dragon Quest V?
2: No, although she does have those. Um, what happens okay. is basically she has her snow leopard like by default, and she can use that one as many times as she wants. And then she can capture pretty much any beast character that she whittles down in terms of hit points. And once you have a beast under your command, you can only have a finite ma- amount of them, uh, you can you, you can call them up in battle. And some of them have very powerful attacks. Some of them are useless. Uh, but every beast you catch has a, a certain amount of uses before it runs away.
1: So I, I think we've talked a little bit about Octopath Traveler, but if, you, if you're not familiar with it for some reason, and it, I mean, if you're not familiar with Octopath Traveler, why are you listening to this podcast? Yeah, I don't know. It's your problem. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there are eight characters, and you can choose between them. And they all have kind of different backstories and different abilities. Mm-hmm. For example, there's of the Merchant and Oberic the Warrior and Primrose the Dancer, who I find pretty interesting, actually. Yeah, and they yeah. all have their own kind of individual conceits, I suppose. And the game on un- uh, the game unwinds or unravels differently depending on how you ultimately pick. So it's with the idea of you can have a lot of different and interesting stories going on with Octopath Traveler. Mm
2: -hmm. Although, um, I will say for the initial uh, part where you go around collecting your allies, um, the story doesn't really intertwine with each other very much so far. I'm still collecting people because there's a lot to collect. I mean, there's eight, and every time you collect a person, you have to go through their opening chapter and, uh, and what have you, and that takes a little bit of time. So uh, I'm thinking once I get everyone and the actual game begins in earnest, like everyone will kind of interact with each other more. But for now, it's more like, hey, I'm on a journey and I need your help. Do you want to come with me? Sure. Okay. great. I'll I'll travel with you from now on.
1: Yeah, it's a little like Seventh Saga. Exactly. Which was uh, how I alluded to it before, which was which is a game where you pick a character and those characters will interact with each other kind of at various points, and uh, it depending on who you pick, it unwinds differently. Is it as hard as Seventh Saga? Like, how hard is it?
2: Uh, I'm playing on normal difficulty right now, and so far I'm not having a terrible time at all, but I did get beat up pretty badly by one of the bosses. Uh, you do have to use the battle system competently in order to really get anywhere, because otherwise... You will be made into lunch. Uh, one thing that's handy, though, is every time you go near an, an area, it'll tell you the danger level. And if the danger level is high, as you can understand, that means like don't go here if you're low level. Uh, but if you um, if you just basically stay in your lane, you're you should be okay. Bosses can be pretty tricky.
1: Stay in your lane. <laughs>
2: Uh, I'm pretty sure, th- I'm, I am think that like, speedrunners are going to have a great time with this game because, uh, for example, if I wanted to, I can already unlock chapter 2 for some of the characters I've recruited, but it says like, you know, uh, recommended level, level 23 to get to chapter 2, for example, and it's like, right now, I'm I don't know, I can't remember off the top of my head, let's say level 15. Uh, so if I really wanted to get slaughtered, I could go off the beaten path and give that a try, but I'm not brave but I'm sure someone who is brave will give it a try once the time comes around.
1: Yes, they will bravely default. They will bravely default. Um, yeah. Uh, so it, when Katie previewed this game a while ago, she suggested that the battles all kind of went on pretty long. Is that like maybe long, too long for her taste? Um, now that you've had some, a decent amount of time with Octopath Traveler. Do you find this kind of the case?
2: Um, I told her to her face. I'm sorry. I don't know what you're talking about. I
1: don't know. <laughs> like, oh, oh, man. and I, 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 on I, the U.S. gamer staff. Jeez.
2: Yeah, we're we're just at odds. No, no, just kidding. But um, I still honestly don't know exactly what the issue is. I know she plays RPGs. I mean, she loves Persona. And, uh, gosh, I see the battles are are not much longer than, than an average Persona 5 battle. You know, maybe even shorter. You have to know you have to, like, basically break through your enemy's defenses, which is a mechanic we've already talked about. Uh, you hit the enemy mm-hmm. with a weapon that they're weak to, and once they're weak, they get stunned, and when they're stunned, they can really lay into them and, and basically wipe them out if you know what you're doing. And, I mean, it's not a terribly hard system to learn. She knew what she was doing in that regard, but I don't know what she was talking about in terms of, of long battles. And Hiran, who's our guides dude, and he's working on the game for guides, he said the same thing. He said the battles are, are fine. Uh, boss battles are a bit lengthy, but that's kind of just the nature of a boss battle.
1: Fair enough. What about the boss battles? Like, uh, what what's been your experience? How tough are they? How much? Mon- how tactical are they?
2: They can be quite tactical. Like, gosh, for example, I was up. Ophelia is the the cleric character. No one outcries Ophelia, as Lisa once said, and um, she was a bit of a rough. She had a bit of a rough boss to take down, even though I already had Hanet by my side by that point. Because she's up against this big stone golem thing, which has high defense to begin with. She takes a lot of, like, hits from uh, a specialized weapon to bring it down. But he also can summon these, uh, these flames that, likewise, have, like, I don't know, something like three defense, and you have to whittle them down and get rid of them, because if you don't, and they finish their countdown, they will wipe you out. So you have to deal with this golem, which can constantly summon these flames. Like, you can get rid of the flames. He doesn't care. He holds the key on summoning them. And you have these flames to deal with, which um, will, once the countdown reaches zero, they'll just wipe you out. There's no surviving what it does.
1: Ow. Dang. <laughs> that sounds uh, this sounds pretty difficult.
2: Yeah. I, I, I basically got through it, though, once. Uh, you know, the thing with, with Octopath Traveler, I find, is that even when it gets difficult, it gives you everything you need to really best your enemies you just have to know what you're doing like each character has a skill and Ophelia's skill that I really learned how to use to my advantage was she can get a townsperson to follow her into battle uh so I, fo- I found a dude who wanted to follow me into battle he's like oh sure thing sister sister Ophelia I'll follow you anywhere and he had these really powerful spells and and uh buffs that really helped me out and then I would use um hannits uh some of her summons some of her summon beasts because they have certain they wield certain weapons that could break through the defenses of the golem and the flames so using that kind of like that attack from all sides and manage to kind of get those flames down to their base defense then just whack them same thing with the golem i, I got it done
1: <laughs> good job you got it done i got it done, <laughs> done.
2: had to do yeah, it to them.
1: excellent yeah Are you playing on TV or handheld mode more?
2: I'm definitely on handheld. Uh, Currently, as we record this, I am actually house-sitting for my parents. I'm babysitting their dog, so I basically brought the Switch over with me. So
1: you're house-sitting for your parents uh, for a dog, and I'm sitting in my gaming room watching soccer but also talking to you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Technology.
1: Yeah, technology is amazing, right? It kind of is. You know, I think that I'm actually going to be playing more Switch games on my TV.
2: Really? Why is that?
1: Well, previously, my TV was a little further away than I would have mm-hmm. maybe liked. I, I had a pretty big TV. It's like a 55-inch. Right. Which is fine, but I uh, the TV is much closer now in this room. Oh, right. Yeah, we ended up mounting it and everything. And it it's big, and it's wonderful, and it's excellent. And it makes <laughs> me want to play on it.
2: That's that's totally fair. I'm more of a private person, number one. Number two, I don't have a very good uh, TV. It's just like the real old HD TV, like, you know, not necessarily first gen, but not necessarily great either.
1: Yeah. I, uh, I I was, uh, when it came to, so I've played, I think on my switch, like once on the, on the TV, (laughs) maybe like, I just have not played my switch on the TV much at all. And now all of a sudden I'm like, maybe, maybe, but on the other hand, last night I, Broke out my really nice headphones to play Super Robot Wars um on on you know just in an armchair because I'm really close to being done with that game. <laughs> You're free. You're almost like I'm, free. I'm, I'm I'm almost free. I've only got like two like two and a half missions left to go. So and it's at this point that I want to start wearing the headphones somewhat on the regular. So I don't know. We'll see how it goes. I may end up continuing to use. The switch in the armchair with the headphones, yeah. or I may be playing it on the TV. That's the thing with the switch, and
2: uh, is that the headphones, if you're not playing in handheld mode, you can't really use them.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, if you have Bluetooth, yeah. uh, headphones and a TV that supports it, you can,
2: true, but I, I don't
1: just not. get with the times, I
2: may as well just have a CRTV, huh?
1: I know, like, geez, you might as well have a Studebaker, <laughs> don't have bluetooth t- headphones that can plug into your tv jeez
2: my uh my first video game console was the ColecoVision, and to play that i had to pl- flip a little switch on the back of the tv really uh, yeah like little rf switches
1: yes i think i had one of those as well for my nes yeah, maybe
2: probably for your NES. Yeah.
1: i always hated plugging those things in because you had to kind of screw them in yeah
2: yeah i got my dad and it to was do painful it. dad do this uh,
1: I cut myself at least more than once Ow. on those dang screws. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't fun. Ow. I was much happier when you got the plug in like actual cables. Yes. Uh, but in terms of, I suppose the reason I asked was in terms of Oct- Octopath Traveler, I'm just wondering how you feel. The Does the style hold up? Does it look just as good kind of over time as it did under first impression?
2: Well, I'd say even more like it's just, a gorgeous game. And I absolutely plan to play it in handheld, uh, sorry, in docked mode before I can really make a final decision on how those graphics hold up. But just some of the environments you visit are just, they're, they're just ridiculously gorgeous. And mm. something like square Enix really nailed that melding of retro aesthetics with the, the, the backgrounds, which like even just the lighting effects, like you, I'm in this town where, uh, I think Alfin lives the, uh, the um, pharmacist. And uh, he, like, just there's these, like, sparkling waterfalls and, you know, just these gorgeous sunlight through the trees. It's just, like, and it, every environment you visit is so different and, like, unique. It's not like you're just visiting the same three places that kind of copy and paste the same graphics over and over. Uh, like, the town of Fila comes from is this snow-covered, uh, sort of, like, almost Russian-like town, and it just has this, like, gentle snowfall going on. It's really nice.
1: That sounds really nice, because all the screens I always saw were, like, super sepia-toned, and (laughs) I could have seen that maybe getting a little old after a while.
2: No, the rest, like, there are are some, like, kind of sepia-toned areas, but mostly it's just kind of what it needs to be. Like, if you're in the the forest, it's very green and lush. If you're in a village, it's, you know, very, like, sort of farmy and and stuff like that, for lack of a better adjective, (laughs) farmy.
1: Lovely. So it sounds like you're really liking it.
2: Yeah, so far I'm really having a good time with it. Um, I do, I'm not sure if this will change as the time goes on. I do kind of wish that there was a way to turn down random encounters uh, mm. like you could do in Bravely Default. Maybe you can once you have everyone together, I don't know, but so far you can't. And uh, on one hand, it's good to get that experience. On the other hand, random encounters.
1: Breath, death to random encounters. Death to
2: random encounters, I agree. Um, that's the one thing I can say I don't like about the game. And I know it's supposed to be an older... Kind of game, but I just don't think random encounters are necessary. If Dragon Quest is leaving them behind, so can everyone else.
1: Yeah, pretty much everybody's left behind. And you're right. I did like that in Bravely Default. If you got sick of them, you could turn them off. Uh, essentially, like you could turn them down to zero, right? You could turn them down to zero,
2: which is not which is not something I would do all the time. You know, I would just be like, okay, I'm a little lost here. I'm going to turn off the the encounters for a few minutes and wander around and see if I can get back on track because I want to fight. Like I want to get that experience. Uh, when I was when I first got into RPGs, I was so miserable because I never fought anything and I always died because I never got experience. So I kind of had PTSD from that. But uh, you know, now that I know what I'm doing, I want to be able to say, okay, you know what? I'm kind of tired of random encounters. Time for me to to you know to leave off for a few minutes.
1: They're the worst when you don't know exactly where you're going yes. or you're trying to solve a puzzle. Yes, exactly. And like in Pokemon, you'd be in the the final dungeon, right? Victory Road. And you'd be like, okay, how do I move these damn rocks around? <laughs> oh, wait, I moved the rocks in the wrong direction.
2: <laughs> and like, no. Zubat.
1: No, I don't want to fight you, stupid exploding electrode or, or Gollum or whatever. Like, everything explodes. Everything or explodes by that point in the game. Freaking Golbat is giving you confusion. And, uh, and it moves
2: before yeah. you do every single time.
1: Yeah, I, I don't like that random encounters are the nostalgia thing, but that's just me.
2: No, I agree.
1: <laughs> yeah. All right, well, we uh, will be checking out Octopath Traveler in more depth when uh, it's time for the reviews, but let's move on now. All right, I'm here with my special guest, David Craddock, continuing our Top 25 RPG Countdown Number 25, as you'll recall, was Final Fantasy V. Number 24 was Tactics Ogre. And this one is right in David Craddock's wheelhouse. It's number 23. All right, this one is a little more obscure, but perhaps not obscure if you're in the roguelike world. And that game is NetHack, which is... Honestly, an all-time classic, initially released in 1987 from Mike Stevenson uh, and was being supported as li- late as 2003. Uh, David, has there been an update
0: since then? You know what? Uh, Dungeon Hacks, my book about formative roguelikes, including NetHack, came out in 2015. And I remember while I was interviewing the team, there were rumblings of an update. And it it wasn't out yet when it went to press. That was in August. But I think within the next six months or so, they actually did roll out the first update in over a decade. So,
1: David, you wrote a book on dungeon ha- uh, uh, on dungeon crawlers or roguelikes, as you said, and you did a really great job of tying it all back to the very formative days of RPGs, the, the primordial ooze, as it were, talking mm-hmm. about mainframes and how games could go viral, as it were, with people sharing discs. Um, so... Can you give people a little bit of kind of context for this game? What the heck is NetHack? And if they're not familiar with this for some reason, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast if you don't (laughs) know what a roguelike is, but perhaps you can kind of explain what a classical roguelike is versus kind of what indies have co-opted.
0: Sure. So the classical roguelikes such as NetHack are are at once some of the most complex games ever made and also the most simplistic. They're simple on the surface because the classical roguelikes – are, they just consist of texts. You know, their UI is made from text, like the player character is represented with an at sign. Walls and floors are represented with with hashtags and periods. Enemies and items are letters, numbers, and other characters. And this seems like the most simplistic type of game ever. And, and, and in some respects it is, because what's interesting is a lot of the programmers I interviewed for Dungeon Hacks said that they eyed creating roguelike-type games because they didn't have to spend weeks or months learning how to create complicated graphics, they could just use text and focus on the logic of the game. And the logic is where these these roguelikes, specifically NetHack, get really complex, because NetHack is a game where you can do almost anything, and almost anything can happen. You know, we're so used to playing AAA games with development teams that number in the dozens, even the hundreds, and kind of the... The double edged sword of teams of that size is sure the graphics are state of the art and photorealistic. I can look in the mirror and my graphics are worse than, you know, anything from Ubisoft. But you also have to take into account that those games won't let you do anything because Artists have to create animations and character models, and programmers have to write code. What's cool about NetHack in particular is this is a game where you can be almost any type of character. You can die in any number of crazy ways, and you don't need animations for any of the adventures you go on because it's all just text graphics and really brief, simple sentences kind of describing what just happened.
1: Yeah, and it goes back to the, like I said, the very earliest days of RPGs. And so many of these games got their start on maybe one of the two foundational pillars of the entire genre. One is either Dungeons and Dragons, (laughs) (laughs) because so many of these guys, uh, and they were guys for the most part, uh, were making games based on their D&D campaigns, or they wanted to explore a dungeon. If I recall correctly... The original impetus behind a roguelike was that one of the creators had actually finished Adventure and got annoyed because they were like, well, I solved
0: this game. Yeah. So they
1: wanted a randomly generated adventure, <laughs>
0: essentially. Yeah, that was uh, Michael Toy, the co-creator of Rogue, uh, which led to Hack, which led to NetHack. And and that's really one of the, the primary appeals, kind of going back to what I said about, about graphics. Because another staple of Roguelikes and NetHack is that they are procedurally generated. A lot of people say random, but that's not quite true. It's all based on algorithms. So in theory, you should, for example... Never be dropped into a dungeon that you can't solve, but the interesting thing for Michael toy was once you know once he knew the solutions to puzzles and adventure, there's no reason to replay it. He also found no attraction to creating his own uh text driven adventure because as the author, he would know the puzzle solutions before he even played the game, and so that's kind of the appeal of these games that. Um, especially net hack players, they love to brag about this because these are some masochistic people. They say that they have played for a year, two years, 20 years, and some of them have never beaten this game because the assortment of dungeon layouts and creatures and items and tricks and traps are never the same twice.
1: And uh, the other pillar that I was going to say was, is basically Lord of the Rings, where, I yeah. mean, Angband, when one of the most famous uh, roguelikes, is Basically, just takes Lord of the Rings whole cloth. It even has a a Balrog ball uh, that is one of the main enemies in that game. But Hack, which came out in 1982, was notable for introducing shops as gameplay elements and greatly expanding the available like monsters and items and spells. And then uh, when it was taken over by Stevenson and his team in 1987, he changed. Its, uh, he greatly expanded upon it. He added all kinds of different things, right? And Uh, that, and he did that in conjunction with a Usenet group in 1987. Yes, folks, the internet did exist, sort of, in 1987. (laughs) Uh, I actually saw a message board about the 1986 uh, Super Bowl, if you can believe that. Uh, That's how far back these message boards go. But you know, they were (laughs) mostly nerds in universities. But he, uh, yeah, he, because he was collaborating it, it, making in collaboration with the Usenet community, he called it NetHack.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting name, too, because I remember I I was introduced to roguelikes through researching uh, Stay Well and Listen, my series on Diablo. And, you know, Dave Brevik had the idea from Diablo because he kind of uh, wiled away his college education playing these games like NetHack. And I'd heard heard of Rogue uh, in passing, and I'd heard of Moria and Angband, but when he described NetHack, I thought, oh, NetHack, those are two, like tech terms i bet this is some futuristic type of rpg no it's it's like you said it was just an extension of hack that was made with this community of people who to this day many of them have still never met
1: it's funny that you mentioned diablo
0: because i saw a quote when i was researching
1: net hack uh from i believe it was john harris who ran the game set watch at, at play mm-hmm. column about roguelikes for many years and it was something to the effect of Diablo is the shallow kiddie pool to net hacks uh <laughs> like friggin' Mariana Trench.
0: Yeah, it's so true. And in fact, David Brevik is still kind of sore about that because the game he pitched to Blizzard Entertainment when they were looking at publishing Diablo was a a single player Turn based roguelike. The only thing different would have been it had graphics. And when Blizzard was pushing for for real time, click heavy combat, multiplayer, Dave was like, no, it's got to be like a roguelike, damn it. But eventually he realized, okay, well, to sell more than than 20 or 30 copies of this game, yes, I do suppose it should be the proverbial shallow, shallow kiddie pool. And that's what keeps people coming back to NetHack. It's so, I think a lot of times for people, Diablo is like a gateway drug. You get that and you read about, oh, this was, influenced by these games called roguelikes and specifically nethack and then they go and and get really really deep into nethack which i think if you're going to play nethack you can only really go really really deep
1: so let's talk about roguelikes really quickly we've talked about these a million times on this show and on active time babble i I don't think it's anything new to the listeners of the show but in case you're new to the to these parts i think that it's worth kind of quickly go over, going over. So we know as roguelikes often as games like Rogue Legacy or FTL or that kind of thing, a, a game that is generally based around the idea of ran, procedurally generated or randomly generated levels, and you have permadeath and you just keep coming back and you're trying to do another run. But I, I think in a, more, a deeper sense, roguelike is based on, yes, randomly generated dungeons and uh, and permanent death are important, but other things include stamina decay, uh, specifically often you need to eat, um, and an identification game. For example, picking up an unknown potion, and it could be good, could be bad, and <laughs> you kind of got to figure out one way or another whether it will heal you or kill you. I mean, you could just drink it. That's not the greatest idea, right? <laughs> that That is, I think, at the core of
0: roguelikes, that's true, and, and the funny thing is, well, two things. I think, first of all, there there are ways to identify items later, but in the beginning, you kind of get used to just popping the top of a potion bottle, chugging, and seeing what happens, and that almost becomes part of the game, especially early on. If you've only played for an hour or two and you drink a potion and it blows you up instead of restoring a few hit points, well, that's, then you learned, and maybe you can make a note of that for next time. But there's also, I think, a corollary between uh, NetHack and more contemporary games, such as the the Soulsborne games from some software, where death is this tool. You're going to die a lot, but you're meant to learn from that. It's not really meant to frustrate or frustrate you or kind of encourage you to shy away from the game. It's really a learning tool.
1: So in terms of NetHack, a, a lot of these dungeon crawlers like Rogue or Ang Band is kind of casts you in that familiar kind of D&D role. Where you're the heroic adventurer, right? Mm-hmm. NetHack is not really that. You are more of a trickster, right? You, your goal is to survive by your wits. You're not necessarily a noble hero. I mean, yes, you're choo- you can choose things like classes like knight or barbarian or priest or monk or samurai, but there are also classes like archaeologist <laughs> and tourist a tourist, which, by the way, they borrowed whole cloth from Terry Pratchett's Discworld books, and which also, by the way, they borrow a frickin' t- metric ton of geek stuff for NetHack. <laughs> I mean, this game is just ridiculously sprawling. It's, it's a kitchen sink. Yes. Of
0: geek references, tropes, the whole nine yards. It is. It's the, it's the kitchen sink of geek tropes. Almost, I guess, uh, a contemporary analogy would be the, the ready player one of, of video games and role-playing games. And that's kind of one of the big distinctions between NetHack and a lot of its peers, such as Angband. Um, Angband, which was derived from Moria, is, as, as you said earlier, very rooted in uh, Tolkien lore. And it's it's a more serious game. Whereas NetHack, like, you can role-play the noble knight, you can get into your character, but you can also just say, like, you know what, I'm going to choose the tourist and use my camera with a flash. Like, that's how I want to start out. It's It's much more irreverent, and I think that makes it... Uh, more fun to some people it can also lower the barrier of entry because these games are very intimidating but when you see some of the the goofy or more humorous class selections like the tourist you're like yeah what is this all about and it kind of encourages Mm -hmm. you to experiment and try it you also get a pet Uh, kind of
1: like torchlight in that regard i suppose right
0: yes exactly and that's that's where torchlight uh which comes kind of derived from Diablo, which was drive uh or sorry fate which was derived from Diablo, and Mm. they thought, you know what, it might be kind of fun to have the pet to kind of pal around with you, kill monsters, hold your items, the proverbial pack mill. Yes,
1: and the pet in this game can do a lot of things. It can identify items, it will shy away from traps, Uh, you can have a a leash on it, Uh, it does a lot. The, The pet is really kind of your best friend.
0: It is, it is, and in, in many ways it's, it can be your only companion because these are not strictly multiplayer games. And it, it goes back to what I said about the complexity, the fact that the pets can do all these things and you can do things like put it on a leash so it can only go so far not run off and get killed. It's just its, it's staggering, the depth of NetHack, which, even though it has this very simplistic, rudimentary-looking surface.
1: So your ultimate goal, find the Amulet of Yendor, which is apparently a reference to an old, kind of lost-to-history RPG uh, at the lowest level of the dungeon, which goes, I believe, 50 levels. Uh, it goes pretty deep. Mm-hmm. And you offer it to your deity, and your reward is Ascension. And to complete NetHack, you ascend, and you become an, you become know, you become immortal. And, of course, everybody has great stories of Ascension, if they can actually make it, which <laughs> takes a long time, and <laughs> you have to really kind of know everything and we'll, we'll get to like kind of those stories in a bit but yes yeah, so that is the ultimate goal of net hack so, so what makes it what's it makes it special uh and I, I guess i kind of turn it over to you david like what makes net hack special
0: i think what makes net hack special uh is a few things first of all you know it came from rogue and rogue's dungeons were kind of like tic-tac-toe boards, skewed tic-tac-toe boards, where each dungeon was only at largest three by three, whereas net hack dungeons can can span several screens, and even though there might only be fifty dungeons, you might happen across cross a, a tower that's kind of, you know, a side quest, a side content area that might lead you to, you know, actually like literally Dracula's lair, where if you kill him you can get extra powers. And I think that's what makes it special. The fact that Sure, there are only 50 base dungeons, but they can look like whatever you want them to look like because you're picturing them in your mind, and there are almost infinite possibilities for things to do and things to see while you play, to the point that uh, I, for example, have never (laughs) found the Amulet of Yendor. I I don't think I've gotten really close. I think I've gotten to maybe level 9 or 10. But oftentimes it's because I don't set out to get it. I'm just kind of picking new classes and really enjoying the catch-as-catch-can experience of playing, and I really do think that's a big part of what makes it so special. Um, It's a big deal to ascend in NetHack, because it takes a lot of players, even the most experienced players, years, as we discussed earlier. But I think most of the stories that you hear from NetHack players are, hey, I died in this crazy, goofy way, or hey, I I found this tower and it led to Dracula, or I found this item I've never seen before, or "I, I fell through the floor and was dropped into this lair with all of these these ball rogs, and I escaped like this, and it was this close spot, by the skin of my teeth, victory. It's it's almost, you could, as a lot of early novelists did, such as Ed Greenwood, you could probably play through NetHack for, for dozens of hours and then take that and write a novel about the adventure. And it would be super entertaining to read.
1: Yeah, I was reading a story about, it was on that Game Set Watch column I was telling you about, was one of them was someone who decided that they were going to be a black dragon because you can polymorph yourself into a black dragon in this game and you could get a necklace that would retain the shape and so essentially you could be that monster for the rest of the game and there are lots of advantages to being a black dragon like the event for example you can lay eggs and they can hatch and those eggs uh become your little baby drip black dragon followers who follow you around and you have like the annihilation breath that of course, if some things touch you, you'll die instantly, so you got to be, be pretty careful about that. But somebody basically wrote—it wasn't a novel, but it was a very long narrative post on Google Groups explaining this character who apparently is a furry for black dragons. <laughs> like, they had always <laughs> wanted to be a black dragon, and at last they fulfilled their wish and their adventures of, uh, of, of ultimately getting to be in Ascension. And I think the thing that's actually pretty fun about this game is because it's an ASCII game, and yes, you can play it with a graphical emulator, and we'll talk about that in a bit, but it really encourages you to use your imagination, right? Like, it really fires the imagination when you get
0: into it. It it does, and the the interesting thing about this is is NetHack is like a a bottomless choose-your-own-adventure generator, because, you know, like I said, no playthrough is the same, so the same the same player, the furry for, for black dragons could, could write that story and his black dragon may die. And then he could create a, a new black dragon polymorph character and go through something completely different.
1: So uh, another thing that I think really makes just net hack great is just the number of ways that you can deal with a threat. Uh, so much of this game is being creative and a lot, uh, and that, figures into something called, uh, it's an acronym, T-D-T-T-O-E, the dev team thinks of everything, <laughs> which is they really think of everything in this game. It's completely nuts. Everything from, like, including a cockatrice, like, that comes up a lot because they can petrify you, right? And yeah. if you touch them, if you touch a cockatrice corpse, you're going to turn into stone, and that's just how it goes. So, but if you put on gloves... To protect yourself, you could pick up a cockatrice and use it as a weapon and just like start petrifying enemies to the touch by its touch. It's it's that's hilarious. I think that's really great. Or you can change gender. Polymorph into a female cockatrice, lay dozens of eggs, revert to human, throw them at an enemy and petrify them instantly. But here's the kicker. If you do so, you'll feel guilty and it will
0: result in a reduced uh, luck stat. I, I think that's hilarious. <laughs> it is hilarious, and that's that's what I mean when I say that modern games just couldn't do that. And if they did, it wouldn't be as satisfying because just to take the cockatrice example, uh, someone would have to build the cockatrice model, which might not look like you know your cockatrice in your head. They'd have to animate being able to put on gloves, pick it up and swing it and petrify other characters. But the fact that you can just do this and the fact that the game doesn't have a graphics engine to deal with means that stuff like this is possible. And recall that, you know, even though the internet existed in the form of message boards and Usenet and and things of that nature these stories were so unique because there wasn't really a strategy guide or or a game facts type website or, or, you know, Prima Games, for example, to really consult. People were just discovering this and constantly boggled by what the game would let them do.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of in-depth lore and actually you can spend a lot of time doing research in the game and you can learn a lot of different tricks. Um, If I recall correctly, there's a word that you can write in the dust that's pulled from straight from Lord of the Rings that some fans will consider kind of overpowered, for example, because it protects you from like a lot of early monsters and in net hack, that is probably the time that is the greatest danger point because there is a certain point where you will get to the point in the game where you're fairly prepared for everything, and if you have if you have if you have a plan and if you are prepared you'll be able to survive a lot of the the problems. It's just the early part of the game where you're still relatively weak that can be pretty dicey. So the my understanding is that in the community it is seen as a huge badge of honor if you just go into net hack without doing any research, without knowing any of the tricks, because there are tricks, and beat it blind. Like that is like wow we
0: bow we bow to you this that's incredible yeah yeah and and the, the game reinforces that luck is a real thing and that you do need some of it on your side because sometimes the game will work in your favor but all it takes is lucking out looking out and getting that one kind of easy breezy uh dungeon layout or a really good item that can carry you through some of those tougher levels and you know absolutely ascension is is worth patting yourself on the back but you also gain a new appreciation for how much that uh, proverbial roll of the dice really influences your journey
1: and when you're starting the game you will die oh yes. it's just it's how it goes uh, what was your do you remember your first death
0: my first death was um, I don't remember it in NetHack, but I remember when I was playing around I was playing a lot of the roguelikes for, for research and dungeon hacks and I think in Moria or Angban, I think this might be the case in NetHack as well, but it, you start in town, and there's a drunk, and I picked the fight with the drunk, and he killed me, which was pretty humbling. Uh, <laughs> Why would you do that? Well, I don't know. He was there, and he wouldn't get out of the way of the shop, so I decided to punch him, and he hit back. And, you know, he's got drunk strength. Like, he can't feel anything. He's all numb and boozed up, I guess. So that was the story I had told myself in my head. But I think... Uh, Even though I don't remember my first death, I remember reading about this and I couldn't believe it was the case. I had to try it. And I did, in fact, I got a horse, I dismounted, I tripped, and I fell and I broke my neck. And that was also humbling that you oh could that God. you can just do that. It's one again, it's one of those things that in a modern game would have to be animated and so most developers wouldn't bother because it would be expensive in terms of resources, but <laughs> yeah. It would never happen cuz no.
1: there'd be a whole bunch of players who would be like, "The BS." <laughs> and they'd get on social media and start <laughs> screaming their head off.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. You telling the story about the drunk killing you just makes me think if Harry went into Diagon Alley the first his <laughs> first year and then gets stabbed by a a drunk yep series and over so they're like Grid, you were supposed to take him out for the books and now the chosen one's been stabbed by some homeless person <laughs> stabbed well, with his pink umbrella over. i just didn't i i i just <laughs> went away for a moment to show him the owl and he came back and he's bleeding out
0: <laughs> from my pink umbrella wand yeah <laughs> oh, amazing
1: uh so one thing that can like one of the Initial hazards, for example, so when you encounter a giant eel, and this is from John Harris, he says, so a lot of enemies have interesting tricks that you kind of have to overcome and you have to kind of learn over time. And a giant eel, for example, will just wrap itself around a player, drag you underwater, you're dead in two turns, right? Very Mm -hmm. dangerous opponent. And then they proceed to go through and talk about all the ways that you can kill them, which there are a lot of ways to kill this thing. So here's the first thing you can do is just take care of it from afar. And since they can't leave the water, that's not too difficult. Okay, that's one. (laughs) You might grease your armor, which makes it difficult for the eel to get hold of you. You might wear an oilskin cloak, which is also slippery. You might wear an amulet of magical breathing, which means drowning is impossible. You might polymorph into a monster that doesn't need to breathe. He might bridge the water with ice using a wand of cold, since eels are harmless out of the water. Or you might teleport the eel with a wand, hopefully onto dry land. You might trap the eel in a small pool by pushing boulders into the spaces around him, creating land. If he's levitating, he can stop—if uh, you're levitating, you can stop surprising the eel and making him lose his grip. Or you could just wear an amulet of life-saving. I mean— <laughs> There's a lot of options in this game.
0: Yeah, it's it's almost as if you know logic is is your best friend because since you are not limited by by graphics or physics engines, you can kind of look at a scenario and go, oh well, I could freeze the water, or I could just stay away and kind of pepper him with arrows. And it, it's funny, I was reading John Harris's column, um, and I, I read that story, and I thought, you know, this this reminds me of some game. I feel like some game took some influence from roguelikes and. The closest one I can think of is Breath of the Wild. It it really has that spirit mm-hmm. of you just letting of letting you kind of dictate what you want to do, you know, especially the the little dungeons that you can solve your own way. And th- and there's nowhere near as there are nowhere near as um as, as limitless of, as possibilities as in a roguelike. but it really feels like that's the sort of game that kind of taps into this spirit of of nethack.
1: Yeah, you're not wrong. Half the fun of Breath of the Wild, after in the months after its release, was going and seeing how speedrunners and such were figuring out how to get <laughs> through dungeons yes. and completely, completely manipulate the physics that were at work, which was entirely the intention of the developers. Yes. And I always thought that was really cool. And that's yeah, an interesting comparison.
0: Yeah, it's it's just it's really you know I, again like the the map in Breath of the Wild is is so massive and it is static, but as I was playing that game, I remember thinking like, wow, this really feels like made in the spirit of roguelikes where the players, any thought that crosses your mind is something that you could do and a net fa- net hack that is exponentially more true because of its lack of, of, of graphical and other contemporary limitations.
1: So the flip side, of course, of having a zillion options for dealing with everything is that there are a lot of ways to die in this game. Like, <laughs> an absurd number of ways to die and, and in fact that has another acronym so we already have T D T T O E, <laughs> but the other one is yasd yet another stupid death
0: <laughs> yes and most of them are stupid but the, the funny oh i've got to tell all of my internet friends about this sort of stupid
1: yeah, I seem to recall, this might have been that hack. somebody wearing boots of levitation and not being able to eat as a result.
0: <laughs> yeah, because you, you can't reach the ground, and it's probably one of those things they didn't know before they tried it, and they just realized, oh, I can't reach my pack because it's down there. Uh, there
1: are all kinds of different stories. Uh, John Harris has one player killed by an electric chair. Random effects are thrones, which unlike fountains have enough possible good effects to make them worth the utilization risk. When a player sits on a throne, the best possible result is a wish for an object. The worst result is a shock of electricity that does—you guessed it—damage. <laughs> so you can accidentally kill yourself. Also, you can end up. Committ- this, this is a weird one. You can com- you can kill everybody of your particular race, and you'll get a message saying you feel dead inside. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the Scroll of Genocide, right? Something like that. Something like that. Uh, that's so the, that's wild. Uh, you can
1: have your brain sucked out by a mind flayer. Um.
0: <laughs> yeah, the Scroll of Genocide is a really good one because... So the, the player character, as I said, is represented by an at sign. But the at sign is also kind of a general representation of human characters, such as thieves, pickpockets, and yes, even drunks. And sometimes they're color-coded, so a blue ad is different from a red ad. And you might get a scroll of genocide that lets you kill all of a certain type of character. But what that means is its base character type, meaning human. And since you are a human, you'll kill all the thieves and drunks, but you'll also kill yourself, which is it's yet another stupid death, but it's also a hilarious death. You can also kill yourself.
1: And then you get an epitaph, at the end, which usually has some kind of pithy message like killed by elementary <laughs> physics.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that reminds me of playing Oregon Trail where you want to tell your friends, oh, yeah, you know, my cat died of dysentery. That epitaph is a really big deal because it's, it's a part of your story. It's really the, the end to the story of your character and your adventure in the game.
1: Uh, Some more, yet another stupid deaths. Hitting a floating eye in melee combat and uh, getting paralyzed and then getting nibbled to death by a (laughs) newt. And another one I like, this one. Another death at the castle. I was planning to go around the castle using a wand of cold, that doing so with a wand, but they ran into a giant with a wand of fire. And, well,. the wand of fire turned the wand of cold into water and they promptly drowned.
0: (laughs) Yeah. No physics system there. Just the, just the dev team thinking of everything and the staggering amount of possibilities. The fact that that is even possible is just such a cool thing.
1: And also, I mean, you have to be careful by things like, whoops, uh, I a shot that I fired accidentally ricocheted off a wall and totally killed
0: me. Yes, if you're a tourist and you get your hands on a handgun, or I suppose that can even happen with arrows. That's that's something you need to take into account.
1: But also that can happen to monsters, too. They can
0: also yes. have yet another stupid death. <laughs> Which is doubly funny because you're still alive at the end of it to continue your adventure, so that's good. You mentioned the tourists, and so we've mentioned the tourists a few
1: times. It, I mean, it's kind of a positive is a joke character right i mean it's a tourist it's a a person with a hawaiian shirt or like a silly shirt and a camera <laughs> and the camera like can uh its main ability is it uses flash and it can cause monsters to I, I believe run away or be paralyzed perhaps uh but the camera is actually really good
0: it is it is so the, the funny thing about the camera and the the tourist garb is that you know, it, it's a stark reminder that NetHack is not meant to be ye old sword and sorcery yarn. It certainly can be, depending on how you want to roleplay your character, but it's it's meant to be irreverent, and, and the tourist class is actually pretty good, but it's also kind of a way to communicate that, you know, you don't have to stick with your class's starting equipment. One of the the core uh, concepts of this genre of game is that there are a lot of items that can be procedurally generated and you might get a really good one. And in fact, that plays into, into progression, you know, uh, in most RPGs, such as the, you know, your final fantasies, you'll want to grind out XP, but in NetHack, you don't really want to do that. The, uh, your power comes from your items. So that, that's nice in a way, because then you don't feel like you have to hang around levels and kill everything. If you don't like your item, you can kind of sneak around enemies, just get to the next level, hope you'll find something better, and then focus on uh, you know, improving your item and, and, and keeping it viable. And that, that, again, makes me think of Dark Souls, how Soul Level 1 playthroughs are possible, because much like NetHack, you don't have to level up your character. You just have to find a really good weapon and, and figure out how to make it uh, bash as many skulls as quickly as possible.
1: Dark Souls, which it's not a roguelike, but has just a little bit of that good old-fashioned dungeon-crawler roguelike uh, spirit to it, at least in the dying aspect.
0: Well, it, it certainly does, and it, it makes you think about how—I I know this is something we'll dig into, but it's it makes you think about how the definition— of of rogue like the envelope of that definition has been stretched you know uh again the levels are static enemy placement is static so that's a, a stark difference from net hack but like you said when you die you leave a blood stain and that has all your experience on it but if you die again that blood stain is gone forever which is a a permutation of permadeath yes it is
1: uh a couple more things about net hack uh you have a couple of you have recurring characters uh so you have Lord Surter, who is kind of a running joke in the community because he comes relatively late in the game, and once you get to him, it's kind of like a well, you're you're overpowered to the point where you can pretty much kill him without any any problem whatsoever, and then whatever you kill him with, you call him Vlad Vane, because he's Vlad the Impaler, because he's a vampire. And the other is the wizard. Did you ever
0: meet the wizard? No, I've met, I think i met Lord Searcher, but I've never met the wizard.
1: The wizard is a character who is like a recurring boss who will kind of chase you around as you continue down, will appear kind of at the worst possible moments, kind of the bane of your existence. And if <laughs> I recall correctly, he
0: will totally take the amulet and replace it with
1: fake amulets.
0: Oh, that's right. I've heard of him. Yes, that is. <laughs> that has forwarded many an ascension. Yes.
1: Yeah. Ed, Apparently you don't want to take that amulet into the end game. No. <laughs> a fake amulet.
0: <laughs> no. No. But it's it's really cool that, you know, NetHack is, is actually known for recurring characters when almost every other facet of the game is is it's random or feels random. It's kind of those those little those anchors that kind of players almost look forward to in a way with each playthrough.
1: So in terms of how to actually play NetHack, NetHack has been free since pretty much the beginning of time you can find it somewhere yes <laughs> but there are a couple ways to play and it is kind of a a heated argument among fans mm-hmm. which is do you play it in the classic ascii kind of way or do you play it with one of the gui additions uh, one of them was falcon's eye falcon's eye is not supported anymore but it, you can still get it for free um or you can pay some money on steam and get vulture's eye which is actually supported and adds additional graphics, sounds, bug fixes, performance enhances. And perhaps it is a way for new players to begin to interact with NetHack. Because let's be honest, I mean, understanding all those little symbols and everything in the ASCII version is pretty overwhelming.
0: (laughs) It is. And you're exactly right uh, about the heated argument to the point where um, I wrote a small book about the making of FTL. And one thing uh, Matt Uh, Davis and Justin Ma told me was that they were very cautious about labeling FTL a roguelike because the roguelike community got really up in arms by that. Like, no, it's not a roguelike because it doesn't meet X, Y, and Z criteria. And um, I know that, ironically, in a way, a lot of the roguelike uh, developers who are pushing for the genre to branch out and not be so rigid in its definition are some pioneers in the genre. Uh, I spent another th- another book I wrote uh, which is um what is it called One Week Dungeons where the, the idea was I spent a week following around I think 8 to 10 people during the the annual 7DRL 7-day roguelike where the challenge is sort of a game jam where you have 7 days to build a roguelike from scratch. And a lot of people such as Ido Yahili, who he loves games like NetHack and Angband but he's also a big proponent of making the genre more accessible. Um, and, you know, that's something I asked Ito as well as Darren Gray, another uh, famous uh, roguelike developer. Um, do, do roguelikes have to be mainstream? Can they be mainstream? And the answer was no, but they don't have to, because you can take games like Diablo, like FTL, like any of the hundreds of roguelikes on Steam, if you do a search filtered by that category. And if you like them, and you hear about the games that influence them, you are more than welcome to maybe spend a little bit of time boning up, but then jump into NetHack and you know kind of step out of the shallow pool and dive headfirst right into the deep end, and a lot of people get sucked in. Well, w- whether people want it
1: or not, I think roguelikes have gone mainstream because there are components, as I was just saying, The permanent death and the randomized dungeons that people do find very appealing and are happy to co-opt into different games, whether it's a something that's a little closer to the classical roguelike, like like Darkest Dungeon, where it's it's a roguelike, but with party members, essentially. (laughs) I mean, it it fulfills all of the requirements for the most part of being a a traditional roguelike. It's just that you have a party and you recruit party members before you go into your randomized dungeon to try and take out different bosses. Or you've got something like Enter the Gungeon, which is an arcade shoot 'em up that borrows some roguelike elements. Uh, I don't think that NetHack is ever going to go mainstream just because it is so intense in in its own way. It's a little like uh Eve Online, where you love to hear the stories from NetHack, but yeah. you don't necessarily want to play it yourself. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean I think it's a really interesting dark uh, argument because even though I don't really have a dog in the fight, as you say, roguelike elements are are extremely popular. And I think that's where what a lot of the community loves to see that even though their game may never be mainstream, and in many cases they don't want it to, because I think NetHack would lose Kind of the charm of its esoteric composition. If it were to become mainstream, they love to see things like permadeath and procedural content. Uh, it's they've influenced so many games, and there are so many different permutations on them. It's just really fun to see uh, the genres trappings, if not the genre, really really permeate games today. So do you play with the GUI, or are you going to play, or do you play with ASCII? I would probably be one who plays with the GUI, and I I, ha- I take no shame in it. I'm fine with it and confident (laughs) in in that because I I really feel like, you know, I think the most important thing about Roguelikes is I would like more people to, to enjoy them and study them and and, and understand what they've really brought to the table and and how much they've influenced uh, modern games. So uh, the, the more ways we can get people into games like NetHacks, the better.
1: I personally am the kind of person who would also play with the GUI. However, I do think that if you're going to try NetHack, and you should try NetHack, it's free after all, you should try with the ASCII at least once Yes. just to get a taste for that history. That's right. right.
0: Yes. Get an idea of what it was like to play in a university computer lab where you were on a teletype, and the map and descriptions and enemy positions and all that was being printed out turn by turn as you played. It was a really cool feeling back then that I don't think could ever be... Fully emulated, but certainly do try the the text only version just to kind of immerse yourself in in the the primordial ooze, one of our favorite terms of of where these games came from
1: so one of the reasons I chose this game for my top twenty five list is, as i've said before with the last two entries, I like games that kind of endure, that have left their market history, that hold up, that you can pick up and you go. Yes, like some aspect of this definitely holds up. And I think that the proof in the fact that NetHack still has a hardcore community after all these years, that it was supported and getting new patches in 2003 that still had a development team and you said, like 2014. Yeah. That, that tells you all you need to know about the appeal of NetHack and, the, and how it has stood the test of time.
0: It really does because unlike a lot of games, you know, it doesn't have a graphics engine that can go out to date, uh, out of date. It is really as fun to play in 2018 as it was in you know 1988, 89. Yes, absolutely.
1: And but and not only that, I don't like to make influence a huge thing in this list. I, I think being influential is maybe apart from whether or not it holds up or stands the test of time, but. Mm-hmm. You can't deny NetHack's influence in so many different ways.
0: No, I mean absolutely not. Not only, uh, you know, are there literal roguelikes and roguelike likes being developed today, but kind of as we discussed, you know, games like FTL, Diablo, uh, Dark Souls, Shovel Knight, they have taken these mechanics that uh, trace back to NetHack and Hack and Rogue and have put a spin on them that so many people find appealing. I, I would I would say that other than running and jumping, I think that roguelike mechanics might be the... They might form more of the bedrock of any other type of, of game and any other type of game component than than anything else today. They're really that prolific and almost ubiquitous.
1: I think about people who are... The, the, the quest, the search for the so-called ultimate game, like mm-hmm. earlier this year, we had Kingdom Come Deliverance, right? Which a lot of people we're really into, because it lets you do so many stupid things. You, you could get arrested in the very early part of the game, completely screw up your, <laughs> your reputation with everybody, and you could get drunk, and you could do all of these things, right? Yes. Well, NetHack's a lot like that, right? It has so <laughs> many possibilities. I, I think people, when they go into a game, they want especially a game that purports to put you into a world and lets you, kind of turns you loose into the sandbox, people want to test the limits of that sandbox. And the fact that NetHack has that kind of the developers thought of everything is maybe just that is what people were looking for and it was under their nose all along
0: right yeah i think so i mean calling it the ultimate game i think is very true and i'll also add another point normally well, take Dark Souls as an example. I don't really like to tout that game's difficulty because I think to a degree that's been exaggerated and it's also... Is it hard? Is it—is it hard? I don't know. I mean, that's that's disingenuous to describe it that way. But I, I, I worry less about scaring people it's a away. Challenge. It is a challenge. But see, I worry less about scaring people away from NetHack because like, this is a game all in text. Like, welcome to the deep end. Good luck. And then I throw you in. But the interesting thing about NetHack and another way it's influenced games like Dark Souls is... Playing it, not just beating it, but even uh, something as simple as playing it and surviving for a few hours, really, it endears you to the game. And it's, it's, it's a badge of honor that a lot of players wear. Uh, I think one reason games like Dark Souls are so beloved to players is because their level of challenge causes them to form a bond with the game. They go through experiences. They have personal experiences. They remember where they were when the first time they solved Send Fortress or beat Ornstein and Smo. NetHack is like that. Everybody has stories from NetHack because it is such a personal, custom, proprietary experience, and everyone is different. And if you survive it, let alone beat it, it becomes a very, very special game.
1: Well, I said that I wasn't going to put Dark Souls on this list, and yet somehow I ended up talking about it for a good chunk of the episode, so there we go. <laughs> yes. Uh, and in terms of NetHack, I don't know, maybe I just kind of see it, maybe this is from my own perspective, because I put so much weight on gameplay. I, I know Nadia differs from me. She puts a lot of weight on story, and that's maybe because she co- she puts so much stock in kind of the Japanese tradition of role-playing games but i i think systems tell the story and in that regard maybe nethack is the ultimate role-playing game where you are creating a character you're the story is unfolding organically through every crazy dang thing that you're going through and your story even though you're going through the same kind of x number of levels you're running the same people and you have the same goal that story can play out in so many different crazy ways that it harkens all the way back to the original Dungeons and Dragons or tabletop role-playing in that you are truly playing a role. You are truly creating your own story and your own character. And that is maybe the essence of role-playing games.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, I'm I'm right there with you. I'm very much a systems-driven player to the point where I, I really kind of steer away from, from traditional narratives and games to begin with. And I feel like I think that NetHack's place on this list is perfectly fine, but I could also make a case for it being number one. Because imagine uh, revealing this list in descending order and scrolling down, down, down to the bottom, and then picture NetHack at the bottom in the number one spot, kind of holding all of these games up on its shoulders. I think that, that, that analogy kind of works because it, it really is that influential. Its systems are absolutely flexible and phenomenal and still as relevant and fun and engrossing today as they ever were.
1: You know, it's amazing. It's funny that you mentioned that because when I was doing the research for this game and I was remembering so much about it, I was like, wow, dang. It would have been funny to put this at number one. Maybe, it, it, I mean, a lot of people consider it one of the greatest games ever made, if not the greatest game ever made. But there are also a lot of great games that are on this list still to come. So please look forward to that. Hack in number 23. And David Craddock, thanks for coming on the show. And before we let you go... Uh, you got a Kickstarter, so tell me all about
0: that. I do have a Kickstarter. It is for uh, ebook and paperback editions of Stay a While and Listen Book 2, Heaven, Hell, and Secret Cow Levels, which, point of fact, is maybe the shortest subtitle I've ever come up with, so I'm kind of proud about that. But uh, Stay a While and Listen Book 2, in short, continues my, my narrative, documentary-style history of Blizzard Entertainment and Blizzard North, uh, focusing on the making of StarCraft and Diablo 2, and really digging into the the ups and downs, many of both, uh, during the two blizzards over a, a, a six-year time frame, leading to the very sudden, very uh, kind of cataclysmic departures of Dave Brevik and Max and Eric Schaefer from Blizzard North in 2003. Yes, I strongly
1: encourage you to check it out. We had an excerpt from the book on the site that was about uh, the making of Diablo 2 and kind of the, the, the difficulty and making the character classes and that kind of thing you can go find that on the site I strongly recommend it okay David thanks for coming on the show and we'll have you back real soon to talk more about another game on this list so please look forward to it thank you hey Nadia we're back oh my god (laughs) and since we're back uh, let's quickly go through some letters from the previous episodes. Uh, P-Dub says. Uh, Tactics Ogre is Bay, <laughs> <laughs> But then they wrote me. A really really long. Email basically being like. Explaining why exactly. Tactics Ogre is Bay to them. Mm-hmm. Of course Tactics Ogre was number 24. On our top 25 list. And they said. Uh, I mean it's really long. Like I can't read this. They talk about the world system. And like. The end game content and the whole nine yards. But here's one that I liked. Uh, one part of it, he says, The best side quest in the game, in my opinion, is a rogue pirate side quest. I say side quest, but it's almost the length of a chapter in itself, requiring roughly 15 battles and being extremely methodical in checking the Warren report. The Warren report is... It lets you see the character bios, it lets you kind of get to know everything that you need to know. It's almost like a newspaper in game. Right. It lets you review all the information that you possibly need. Long story short, you end up recruiting a pirate who has serious issues coming to grips with his past. And you watch a few heartbreaking scenes with some of the best sprite animation and artwork in the game. The real kicker is that just one playthrough doesn't give you the full effect of the pirate's story. There are clues in the conversation that only occur when you make the decision to loot the pirate's graveyard they are not present that if you decide not to disturb the graveyard. It's only for comparing and contrasting these conversations that you get the full effect and characterization of the rogue pirate, Azelstan. <laughs> wow. So, I think that's pretty cool for a tactics RPG, don't you think?
2: Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Um, I feel really bad that I haven't really gotten around to playing this, you know, the PSP version of this game because I've always been kind of a little bit Distant with the Ogre battle because I guess uh, the SNES game uh, traumatized me a bit being a real time strategy game, which of course, let us cling together, isn't.
1: Mm, indeed. So, Pandalol says I bought a PSP way back when to play some PS1 games, and I own exactly two physical discs Tactics Ogre and Valkyrie Profile. <laughs> and I've never got around to playing either one of them. I can feel Cat's disappointment.
2: Oh, great. Oh, I am screen. judging you. Prepare to be judged. (laughs) The judging hat. We're putting on the judging hat.
1: This is a pretty long one. Um, Weegraful says, The remake of the Tactics Ogre is a game I feel is spoiled by the unbelievable amount of endgame side quests. (laughs) Grinding and crafting problems aside, I remember spending literal months doing endgame content to the point that I completely lost the thread of the story and never finished the game. All the drama of the final act evaporates into a fog of tracking down characters, grinding out items, and adjusting factional affiliations. All that being said, I love the game. What comes before that final act is all compelling. The music and art is wonderful, and there are many interesting tactical challenges. The aesthetics and storytelling that became the Quest House style have influenced my tastes ever since playing the original Ogre Battle right down to the present day, and the Quest games remain a common gaming touchstone I can share with my dad. These games remain very dear to me, despite their flaws, and I will always maintain a fascination with what this weird corner of JRPGs tried to do. Aww. By the way, I was by the way, I was pretty surprised you missed the opportunity to talk about how much Matsuno was influenced by Ultima, considering the subject matter of the show. <laughs> Fair enough. My, my apologies. <laughs> That's a good point. Oh, update, by the
2: way, Nadia. Uh-huh.
1: England and Colombia are now in penalties, and England just
2: missed. Oh, oh. <laughs> Oh no! Oh, man. Tom is pissed it's, right is, now.
1: They're gonna crash out. It's uh, it's gonna be penalties again. <laughs> England's feeling the PTSD as we speak. Wow. Also, penalties are terrible. And uh, Von Foil says 80, 83 says I'm so loving the podcast. Great format right now with a guest interview and then top twenty-five RPG segment. Thank you so much. Yes, I really you. appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, yeah, uh, and thanks to David for coming on the show. I'm hopefully we can have. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of guests yeah. lined up for these various entries who can really talk about a game. And we want to just make sure that every game gets a, the attention that it deserves. Right, Nadia?
2: Yeah, I mean, we're talking about the top 25 best RPGs of all time. And even when you're talking about a list like this, uh, it doesn't mean that you know you and I see eye to eye on every game or that we can go into you know incredible depth with each game. Uh, I think basically having a good rotation of guests is really going to, help us cover uh, everything that's really special about them.
1: What do you mean we don't see eye to eye on every game?
2: Well, you know, like... Right. Y- are you holding back on me, Nadia? <laughs> <laughs> no, I would never hold back on you, Kat.
1: Good. Good. the Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia at Nadia Oxford. Remember to check out David Craddock's Kickstarter. He recently posted a really cool excerpt about Diablo 2 from his upcoming book and thanks to him for coming on the show to talk about NetHack. Next week we'll be continuing our top 25 RPG countdown with number 22, so please look forward to that. And in the meantime, I mean, I was kind of the summer release Doldrums, but I'm hoping to get a copy of Ta- uh, Octopath Traveler soon enough. It's so
2: annoying that Nintendo won't save me a code. Yeah, yeah, I'm surprised I haven't gotten one yet. That's uh that's a bit of a detriment.
1: By the way, another update, Columbia
2: missed too, so it's tied. <laughs> wow, they just want this to go on, don't they?
1: Yes. And people listening to this like next Monday are going, what? <laughs> wow, man, to England this... lost on penalties ages ago. People listening to this know the future. I know, it's that's so crazy. I'd, well, actually, I don't want to know what the future is because I imagine the, the future is going to be pretty depressing, so.
2: Yeah, no matter which way you look at it. <laughs>
1: Oh, crap. Columbia lost, uh, Columbia missed. <laughs> so if England puts this home, they will advance into the next round, Nadia. Yay,
2: England. Tom's going to be so happy.
1: Yay, England. <laughs> that sounds like a very Canadian thing to say.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, we have the queen on our money.
1: That's true. She looks very angry, and but she's there. England does kind of pay our bills. Yeah. They keep this podcast going. They kind of do. They do. I I honestly want to report to see if England actually like slots this home. Uh Yeah. The the tension, Nadia, the tension is really exciting. I'm watching this in real time as we're recording this. And here we go. He's running up. And oh, he slots it home. Oh, my gosh. Yay, Kiki Ball. I think they won. It's over. Oh, yeah. They totally. It's totally over. England won. Yay. Wow. That's weird.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't expecting that. (laughs) Oh, my God.
1: Yeah, well, this has been the Axe of Blood God Sports Corner.
2: (laughs) (laughs) The Sports Hour with Kat Bailey.
1: Yeah, and uh, for Nadia, David, and myself, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week, and until then, happy adventuring.